So, and so I am just also just so happy and um, I feel really blessed and privileged that uh, Dr. Spencer, <laughs> uh, he has enough confidence in me, amen, to work with me and to be able to bring the word of God uh, to this great uh, local body right here. You guys are great, smart, bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm so happy to be here before you. So, let us kind of travel down memory lane for the past couple of weeks. We want to catch up and continue to plow on where we left off. Message. And it seems like there's no time to waste. He likes to get right to the point. So Mark's Gospel, uh, as Pastor Spencer has told us in the first week, that it is inflation proof that it is obsolete proof, and that it is still relevant today. And so in today's contemporary society, Pastor Spencer, he brought out several uh, wonderful things as we look at the urgency of the gospel to the urban soul, and that many times we look more into the meaning of finite things, and when we do that, the further away we're driven away from God. We acknowledge that certain gadgets or a change in job or a change in location. It's not going to bring that fulfillment that many people are looking for. There has to be something that delivers us from the cycle of madness, as he describes it. And then we go right to the main thing. Someone say the main thing. Mark 1 and 1. We learned a, a, a piece of passage or scripture that same day. We all remember, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Say it with me one more time. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we get right to the point. So we learn that Jesus is the subject in this passage. And so that the gospel is Jesus Christ. Week number two, we learned that John the baptizer, he has stepped onto the stage. He has come onto the scene, so to speak. And John arrives in total fulfillment of the scripture. We learned that John the baptizer prepares the way and announces the coming of the Lord. John the baptizer, he's preparing the way. And in contrast, in contrast we learned that there are other different type of preppers in society. We know what they are. It's a different type of preparation that John the Baptist was involved in. Preppers we see today are people who are expecting the worst to happen. You know, they're preparing, they're buying canned goods and cases of water, and some are even taking up guns and ammunition. You know, they're, they're preparing for the worst thing to happen. But John prepares the people for the best, and that is the coming of the Lord. We learned that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are considered the people of the way. The people of the way. Then we plow on to week three. We talk about the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. John the baptizer was called by God to bring forth everyone into repentance and confession. In this portion of the series, we learned that Jesus was 100% God and Jesus was 100% what? Man. 
you guys were paying attention. Praise God. God called, uh, God, so we, we, we call this, he gave it a theological term. It's called a hypostatic union. Just like we just articulated. Jesus as a man, he existed in a sinless state. Jesus in his humanity. He humbled himself and allowed John the baptizer to immerse him in water. And this demonstrated a degree of humility and submission. Humility and submission. And we should take away two things from that message that I remember. We should have a deep appreciation for who Jesus really is and to be encouraged that we are serving the one and true God. Second thing we should have taken away from that portion of the message is that the Lord wants us to learn submission. I think that is a great problem that we have in society. We have a very difficult time humbling ourselves to other people. Jesus, who was 100% God, who submitted to man, who was not God. And so we could learn humility and submission from our Lord and Savior. Leading up to last week, we see that Jesus, he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Mark doesn't go into details about what exactly happened in this transaction, but, and it's not a transaction, but what happened at this event, because it was a non-issue to Mark. It was a non-issue to him. He simply show, shows that Jesus won. It was a point of confidence that we can be encouraged that Jesus always wins. Say that with me. Jesus always wins. So he came out unscathed and he came out unharmed. Jesus still remains our victor so we can have complete confidence in Jesus Christ. It wasn't even a fight. It wasn't even a battle. So to speak, as some of my children like to say, Jesus kicked his butt, so to speak. And that leads us up today. Mark's urgent message, it presses on. Can you turn with me to Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15? Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now John was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Once again, Mark tells us about an event. But he doesn't go into details as to how it happened. He just simply states, John was arrested. It's a common. And he goes right into it. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He's like, you know what? John was arrested. John was on the stage. He exits the stage. And now here we have Jesus arriving onto the scene. He gets right down to it. He doesn't play around. He, at this particular time, he doesn't go into detail why John the Baptist was arrested, how it all happened. He doesn't say, he says, John was arrested. Jesus. Here we go, the urgency of the message for the urban soul. Jesus. We look in the passage, it says, Jesus was saying, or Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. 
the time is fulfilled. When we look at Mark, we see that Mark is very careful that every proclamation that he's making is showing that it is a fulfillment of scripture. And that's where we get this, the time is fulfilled. You turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to see another instance where Jesus shows where the time is fulfilled. Luke chapter 4, I want you to follow along really closely, verses 16 through 21. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And it says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to claim the year of the Lord's favor. Then it says, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so here we are, Jesus, right here, making the proclamation, said the time is fulfilled. My children are a testimony of, uh, of this. It kind of reminded me, I was reflecting on in, in the car. Uh, maybe about seven or eight years ago, uh, my oldest daughter, I'll pray for her, she's not here today, but my oldest daughter, she really wanted to go to this Jonas Brothers concert. She wanted to go really bad. And since she's predominantly a good child, I says, okay, that's fine. And so she was waiting, and I remember getting the tickets online, and we got the tickets, and she was ready. And, uh, and, and I noticed that there were going to be other performers that's going to perform before her, before them. And so I didn't know who all the other ones, other ones were, but there was one that came up right before the Jonas Brothers. I think her name is Jordan Sparks. And people were excited about, you know, excited about her. And she was what we used to call back in the old days like a hype person. She got the people hype, you know, for the main act. And she was performing on the stage and the, and the crowd, you could just sense the energy in the crowd and all the girls were just getting excited and taking pictures. You could just see flashes all over the place. And as she's getting ready to introduce the next act, the Jonas Brothers, this stage, was at, I'm not really a concert goer, I had never seen anything like this. The stage could move up and down and all around. It could do all these different type of things and lights. And as she's bringing on the main act, the Jonas Brothers, you see her kind of leave the stage, kind of go down. And as the new song come up and as they, the Jonas Brothers come, they actually, the whole band kind of comes up and they enter the stage. The main act had arrived. They were here and you could just sense the anticipation and, and, and poor Deja, she hadn't ever seen her like this before Pastor Smith. I got pictures to prove it to you. She was almost in tears. Matter of fact, she was in tears. 
and I could just see, I'm just looking at over, and she was like, yes, they're here, and she starts singing along, the time is here, you know, they're here. And so it kind of reminds us what's going on here. The time was at hand, the, the much anticipated coming of the Lord, it was here. John the baptizer, he paved the way, preparing the people in anticipation for this great Messiah, the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, to come onto the scene and to restore his kingdom. Jesus himself, he comes onto and says, the time is at hand. It's been fulfilled, as we saw in the book of Luke, by your hearing right now, it has been fulfilled. So there's no question there's not a doubt. Marks make sure that we know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he is the one that the world is looking for or needs. And so Jesus, he entered onto the scene to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of the people who believed. Jesus, he had not come up to, in Galilee. He didn't come up to set a new territory as we may think it you know, with boundaries and with his own currency. And, and uh, you know, when another nation conquers another nation, it was tradition that they come and set up a flag and take dominion over it, in which he would be the monarch. He didn't come to do that. He was not talking about a geographical area when he spoke of the kingdom, but it was an activity, a rule over people who had entered his kingdom by a new birth. The kingdom of God, it is at hand. It is near. It is Jesus says, I am he, I am the kingdom. So the words were assertion of Jesus' redeeming power and his might. All those years that the, they had been waiting for, the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, now, Jesus says, the kingdom has come because the king himself is here. It's all about Jesus. Say that with me. It's all about Jesus. And so the Lord was telling the people, that they were now confronted with a power that they just could not avoid. The time has come. The king is here, Jesus of Nazareth. And so this same king, he speaks the same today, equally and in reality. No longer does he have to enter the village of Galilee, for he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the king. He upholds all things. He sustains all things. Everything that is here belongs to him. He guides and governs the movements of everything that is existing in the universe. Now that Mark has shown us that the king has come and that the kingdom is at hand, that the king is, his name is Jesus, let's look a, look a little deeper into the king's message. Pastor Spencer, I kind of felt like, Mark, you know, you know, this is important, but it's like, I, I got to get to this point. I, I, I got to, all, all of this is important, but we, 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 I, I have a mess. There's a sense of urgency. And I felt the Lord leading me with this urgency, and it was what the king's message was. It says, repent and believe. And we need to respond to the king's message. Why? Because we're talking about the Lord of the universe. There is a universe, this, this universe, it needs to respond to the king who humbled himself to save his people. There's only one saving response to the message or the proclamation we find in Jesus. It's found right here 
in the book of Mark. One saving response. We find Jesus after saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. He gives a command. The first command that we see Jesus, when he's first beginning, he gives a command. After he makes this proclamation, he gives a command. What is the command? It says, repent and believe in the gospel. Coming to church is not a saving response to the gospel of Jesus. Cleaning up your life just a little bit is not a saving response to the gospel of God. Being a little bit more moral is not a saving response to the master. There's only one saving response to the gospel of Christ, to the gospel of God. And that is repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. They're not two different things. They actually go together hand in hand for a true repentance or true saving response to the master. Jesus is not suggesting, you know, he's not giving some advice. He's saying this. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn with me to Acts 17 and 30. Acts 17 and 30. Let's see something here. I'll go ahead. Paul says this. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people. Someone say all people. Everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so Jesus is not suggesting, he's commanding here. The time is at hand. John the Baptist, he's paved the way for Jesus. His work is finished. He's done. Just like in, in, in my little illustration here, when Jordan Sparks, when she brought up the, with the main act, she was done. You didn't hear from her anymore. She's done. It was time for the main event. And Jesus commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in his gospel. And so therefore, so we have to, I think we need to spend just a little bit of time on the command of the master. So basically, let's, let's look at some basic definition of true repentance and true belief. A saving grace by which the heart turns away from sin. This is a basic definition of repentance. A saving grace by which the heart, someone say the heart, the heart turns away from sin and it turns away from self, which is so prevalent that we see in our society today. We see a lot of sin and we see a lot of focus on self. When we focus on self, we're looking for things to satisfy the soul, whether in urban or, or rural, but it's looking in all the wrong places. And Pastor Spencer, he articulated that sometimes we ask the wrong questions. And when we ask the wrong questions, when the answer is given to us, we reject it because we're asking and we're looking at, at the wrong thing. 
And one of the great questions we need to ask is, why is there so much sin or violence within myself? Myself. So saving grace is which the heart turns away from sin and it turns away from self. True belief of faith, another basic definition, is a saving grace in which the heart turns towards Jesus Christ and trust. The heart turns towards Jesus Christ and trust. But we need to talk about a couple of distinguishing marks of true repentance. And so we see the, the master, the king himself, who has arrived, he comes out with a command. So we need to know what is he talking about and, and how can we recognize this, this repentance and belief in the gospel. Number one, knowledge of sin. There can be no true repentance if there is no knowledge of sin. Let me say that again. There could be no true repentance if there's no knowledge of sin. Can you turn with me to Romans 7 and 7? Romans 7 and 7. Paul goes on to say, What shall we say? That the law is sin? And he says, by no means. He says, absolutely not. He says this in one of the strongest things. He says, absolutely not. He goes on to say, yet if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to cover if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so therefore, we must have knowledge that sin is present. Sin must be known. But let's make it clear. We know that knowledge alone is not true repentance. Knowledge alone is not true repentance. How many times have we done something we knew it was wrong? We knew it was wrong. We did it anyway. We didn't feel bad about it. Just the fact that we knew that that was sin does not mean that that was true repentance. So just the knowledge of sin is not true repentance. The next thing is we must have is the affirmation of my sin. Affirmation of my sin. It's not just an abstract notion that there is sin, but a sober acknowledgement that I myself had committed the sin before a holy God. Let's look at Isaiah 6 and 5 really briefly. Isaiah 6 and 5. I'll go ahead and you can bookmark it and read it. Isaiah, he says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here we are. We have Isaiah right here. He is affirming of the sins within him. He's not talking about the sins of everybody. He started off with the affirmation of the sins of himself. So true repentance looks at the sins of myself. Let's start with us. 
We're so busy asking, why is the world like this? Why is the world like this? Why? We're asking the wrong questions sometimes. What about the sin and affirmation of the sins that dwell within me? David said in Psalms 51 and 3, he says, for I know my transgressions. He says, I know them. He says, and my sin is ever before me. He acknowledged, my sins are ever before me. So he affirms. Not only does he know about it, he affirms of the sin that's within the, inside of him. We see the baptism of John. You see the connection, the baptism, the, 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 the baptism of repentance and humility. And there's something else. It is a sorrow or a grieving over sin. A sorrow or grieving over sin. Another true indication of true repentance. This is what God told us to do. He says repent. And so we need to know what does repentance look like. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 7. We're getting there. Just hang in there. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 10. Here's an example of grief and sorrow for the sins. Paul says this in his second letter to the church of Corinth. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I, don't, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is. And he says this, pay attention, he says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So Paul is saying, he's saying right here, there is a godly grief, a godly sorrow, a godly regret for the sins that we have committed. That the work in our hearts that produces repentance is not a sorrow for the consequences of sin. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about the sorrow of the consequences of our sins. You know, we can all weep over the consequences of our sins. We all have done it. I've done it. You know, I did something and man, it was the wrong thing and I suffered consequences of it. So it, that's easy to do. The heathen uh, do things and, and he feels sorry, but he's sorry for the consequences of it. They were sad and sorry, but that doesn't demonstrate true repentance. It's not because of you lost something of material value or because of loss. It is because you have fallen out of fellowship with the master, that you have displeased our Lord and Savior. That's where the grief, the true repentance comes from. You know when you say, I'm sorry, for Lord, I've, I'm so sorry that is wrong. I have transgressed against you. Not because I lost the job because of this. Not because I got incarcerated because of this sin that I committed. That's all sad and everything. But I have grief because, Lord, I have failed. A classic case that I found. I wanted to find a classic case where there was something that happened and they were grieved. But they were grieving for the wrong things. And I think that this is an indictment on Israel at the time. And, and I think as, as a nation and as a society, it's an indictment on us today. 
Turn with me to Hosea chapter 7. Hosea chapter 7. Verse 14. I'll move on. It says, they do not cry to me from the heart. But they wail upon their beds. Why? For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Here it is. So they, 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 were, they, they weren't crying because they had displeased God. They were crying because they suffered loss in, 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 in their harvest. You know, they, they, you know, God had taken away the grain and the wine and they gnashed themselves upon their beds. They, they, they were grieved. They were sorry. Not because of what they had did, but because of the loss that they incurred. Because of the loss that they incurred, the economic loss that they incurred. Many times you have lost something or damaged something. You were mad because of that loss. And it caused you to sin. Because we were so attached and we, we put so much confidence. We, we're searching for things that make us happy. And the things that we think that make us happy is taken away from us and it's lost. And it causes grief. And it causes us to sin. God says Repent. So it's very possible to grieve over the law for stuff, rather to grieve over the fact that we have displeased God with sin. All it proves is that the heart is more attached to the stuff than the king who is ruler over everything. It concentrates over the broken communion with stuff rather than the broken communion with God. So along those lines, there's a hatred or for distaste for sin. We should hate sin, but love God. This is all about the relationship with God. Repentance is about relationship with God. I believe in Psalm 51, David, he says, create in me a new heart, a new heart, so that I may worship him. It is a relationship. So true repentance is a grace that is a work in our heart that is disturbing me with the fact that I am displeasing God. That I am displeasing the king. In the second part of the canon, he says, and believe in the gospel. Saving faith in our king. Knowledge in the work through the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the Son of God, the fulfillment of Scripture, the gospel, the good news. There has to be knowledge of the gospel. I'm talking about saving faith. So we have to have knowledge of the gospel. So when we're dealing with repentance, we have to have knowledge of sin. And here we have to have knowledge of the gospel. Now just because you know the gospel of God, and you've heard the good news, it doesn't mean that you have saving faith or saving belief doesn't mean that you necessarily, that you have a saving faith just because you have knowledge of the gospel. We must have what they call an affirmation, that the facts about the gospel is true. That the facts about the gospel is true. That Jesus is the Messiah. That the gospel is Jesus Christ. 
I thought this was, I was thinking about this. I said, you know what? Demons have good orthodoxy. Demons, they do. They know and affirm that Jesus is the son of God. They know that he is glorious. They, they, they don't wrestle with the fact that he is the son of God. They don't have no problems wrestling with that. They have good orthodoxy. They know that Jesus is the one. He is the anointed one. We see it all throughout the gospel. Oh, we know that you are the anointed one. What do you have to do with us? The master speaks to them and they obey. And so just knowing, so just knowing about it doesn't necessarily, so there has to be something else. They don't wrestle, you know, they don't wrestle with the doctrine of the Trinity like many people do. They don't, they don't, they know and identify Jesus as the son of God. So affirmation alone does not constitute true belief. A personal trust in Jesus Christ. Who, has, who was both God and human, who came to declare his kingdom, we trust and hope in him. Jesus wants us to trust in him, who is the one who saves sinners. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor. And he says, and I, I will give you rest. Paul says in Philippians 3 and 8, he says, indeed, he, listen to this. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowledge, Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Christ is my treasure. And that is what Paul is saying. Christ is my treasure. In 2 Timothy 2 and 24 it says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So it is not on our own doing. It is a gift from God. It has been granted to you by God. If you currently, if you're believing today, it is not because you're smarter than anyone else. It's not because of that. It is simply because it is the gift of God that he has granted you the gift of belief. So here's my conclusion from today. The gospel of God was foretold throughout the, New, throughout the Old Testament. We, we revisited that earlier. It was preached by Jesus, and it was brought by Jesus. Jesus, he preached, I'm, I'm sorry, they preached, early, they preached this gospel in the early church, and it should be preached by us and to all the people hear it. This gospel of the kingdom of God is the good news. That at the coming of Jesus, God moved into this world in an unprecedented way. Since Jesus has come, God is, 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 he is exerting his right to rule in a new and more powerful way. He's attacking the enemy 
the devil in various ways. He has dealt with sin in a new way. He is gathering his people together in a new way. He is empowering his representative, us, in a new way. In all this, he's reigning as the king. This is the coming and the advancement of his kingdom. This is the good news. Jesus. It is the gospel of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So therefore, let's let every one of us turn from every other claim of self and sin. And let's turn our allegiance to our king. Let us repent and, do, and, 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 and repent of all the rebellion and all the treason, so to speak. And let us accept the terms of God's kingdom. And that is repent and believe in the gospel. There's so many of us that, that, that are looking for this, this, to fill this void in their life. We've learned earlier that we try to find it in, in purchasing things and going places and, and all these different things. It's just trying to satisfy the soul. Yet, still ask the question, what's wrong with the world? And not looking at ourselves. And we have John the Baptist paving the way, paving the way for the answer. The long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the one who's going to restore order. And that is through the work of Jesus Christ. There may be somebody today, it may be someone here that has a knowledge of the good news. You may know about it. You may have heard it, been to church, and heard about the gospel. Maybe somebody here, you heard about it. It might be someone who says, you know what, yeah, I, I sin. But you haven't placed your trust and your confidence and have a true sorrow for the sins that we both know about, that we acknowledge, and the need that we have to be reconciled back to. It may be so, it might be someone here today. You've heard the gospel, you acknowledge it, but now you want to live it. If that's you today, I say that we take heed to what the master has said. Repent and believe in the gospel. Every head bow. If there's, that is you, God is calling you. He's calling all people to repentance. The stage has been set. The king has arrived.